Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. And we think of hacking, we typically think of some tech-savvy dude breaking into computer systems to steal data. But hackers can also take the form of social engineers, individuals who get what they want by building rapport and penetrating psychological defenses. My guest today is an expert and a pioneer in the area of human hacking. He makes his living showing companies the weaknesses of their security systems by breaking into their office and computers, not by bypassing passcodes and firewalls, but simply by walking in the front door and knowing how to ask for and receive access from the humans who run the show. His name is Chris Hagnagy. He's the author of Human Hacking, Win Friends, Influence People, and Leave Them Better Off for Having Met You. In this book, he takes the social engineering principles con men and malicious social hackers use to breach security systems and steal data and shows the average person how to use them for positive ends in their personal and professional relationships. Today on the show, Chris shares how assessing which of the four styles of communication someone prefers can help you better connect with them, why you should approach every interaction knowing your pretext, the keys for building rapport, and the difference between manipulation and influence. And we end our conversation with tips on the art of elicitation, which is how to get information from someone without directly asking for it. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash human hacking. All right, Chris Hadnagy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you are a hacker. Now, I think when I think if you grew up in the '90s, like I did, <laughs> you have this sort of archetypical idea of what a hacker looks like, what they do. So usually they're in a dark room, furiously tapping at a keyboard in front of a monitor with a black screen with a green fonted code <laughs> cascading down. Maybe listening to the Prodigy, yeah. but uh, that's not what you do. You uh, you do. There's some computer hacking involved, but you primarily hack humans. What is a human hacker? That's great, by the way. I love that image. And don't forget the Mountain Dew. The Mountain, the Mountain Dew, Dew right. has to be there. So human hacker is basically just like hacking a computer where you understand how a computer or a piece of software works. So you inject code in order to get that program to do something it shouldn't. A human hacker does the same thing. We understand how humans make decisions. So we influence those decisions in a way that gets them to do things that we want them to do. All right, so a, a nefarious version of this would be like a con man. Con man, scam artist, they call social engineers from a malicious side, and then you can have all those same skills on the good side. And your job as a human hacker is companies hire you to hack in to their companies, and that's not just computers, but it's like getting into, the, into secure areas where people shouldn't be. Your job is to do that so these companies can figure out, okay, we need to change this in our security protocol. Yeah, so we call it adversarial simulation, which means that a company hires us to say, hey, we know you're not the bad guy. We want you to make believe you're the bad guy and tell us if you can get in. So we'll do everything from phishing, like email-based attacks or vishing, phone-based attacks, or we'll physically go on site and break into a building, uh, both in broad daylight and in the middle of the night. And then we tell them, hey, here's how we did it. And here's what worked. Here's what didn't work. And here's why you need to improve these particular areas. And how did you get started with this? Because like I, we've had, uh, you know, we've had Frank Abnagel on the podcast before. And this is a guy, you know, he was a con man. And then yep. you know, he, now he, he tells companies how not, what, what, the, what people like him used to do. Did you start off like as a black hat hacker and then became a good guy, white hat guy? That's, I love that question. You know, so that is the common story, but I got fortunate. So I was in college for computer programming And I was, of course, interested in telephony at the time, what they call phone freaking. And I wrote a program that today we would call a war dialer. And I shut down my whole county's phone system for a day. And that, of course, ignited a flame in me. I was like, I need to know more about this. 
and started reading and researching and, and then it kind of went away. And it was years later, maybe a, a decade later that I started working in the field with a company that did network pen testing. So network adversarial simulation. And I was really bad at coding. I mean, I did it. I have a couple exploits under my name, but I wasn't great at it. So I found it easier to deal with the humans. So I started doing that. And when I started doing that, it wasn't an industry. There was nothing around it. So I actually wrote the world's first framework for social engineering, and that formed my company. So it's kind of a quick version of a long story, but that's how I ended up doing this for a living is I actually helped create the industry that does it now. And I imagine your services are high in demand now because this stuff is just, I mean, there's not a day that goes by that I don't get some sort of phishing text from somebody about something. It's unbelievable. If you if you and I were having this conversation seven or eight years ago, I might have said, yeah, this is going to be a big thing. I would not have seen the way the world would have gone now. I mean, everything involves social engineering. When you have a 17-year-old that could hack Twitter with one phone call, the whole world is vulnerable. And we see phishing, vishing. Uh, they're trying to hack the, the nation states, trying to hack the freezers that are holding the COVID vaccine right now through phishing emails. It, it is just nonstop barrage of attacks globally. I forgot about that Twitter hack. That was a big one. <laughs> like the person got that was ac- a huge one. <laughs> like, what, what happened? They got access to like the back end. So basically. Twitter has a yeah special database that houses like some of the really high end people, like Elon Musk and President Obama and people like that. And this kid wanted access to it, so he called up, got a hold of someone in Twitter support, said he worked in this other department and needed access had enough information that he sounded legitimate, spoofed his phone number, and the guy on the phone gave him the username and password and gave him access. So he logged in and in eight hours stole $300,000 in Bitcoin. That's crazy. And so I think this drives home the point that a lot of hacking is not just you're putting in, in you know, injecting computer code. It is you are manipulating people. Like it's, you have, there's a social aspect of it. That's, and that's often the most vulnerable part because as we all know, humans are extremely fallible and what is it pt barnum supposedly says <laughs> suckers born like we're, we're gullible like we want to believe or trust that people are good people and we'll just go along and give them information that we probably shouldn't have done and you know i, I look at the science behind that like i i laugh at, at pt barnum's statement but i like to twist that a little differently is this is the way we survive as a species right imagine if Everybody we met, we were automatically built in to be distrusting and we thought you were a terrible person, right? We wouldn't be able to survive. We would be no better than animals that we just breed when it's a time of the year and then, you know, we, we procreate that way and that's it. But our ability to interact in social environments is what makes us different and what makes us human. And that ability, we don't want people to lose that, but scam artists, con men, that's what they play on. So the idea is to get people aware that these things happen so they can be better protected. Think of it as learning a martial art or learning how to box. And if you don't know how to fight at all and someone throws a punch, you may take it square in the face. But if you had any martial arts training or boxing training at all, someone throws a punch at you, muscle reflex goes into action and you block it. So that's the goal here is to help people learn that these things can happen. So A, they can use them in their life for betterment, but also they can stay protected from the bad guys. All right. So common use, basically what common ed, they're very adept. They understand how, how humans work and the emotions and the, the social processes that go on in human relationships. They use that for nefarious 
you use those things to show companies and governments possibly like where weaknesses are and how you can protect yourself from con men. But in this, in your latest book, Hacking Humans, you make this case that the same things that con men use to steal Bitcoin or secrets from companies, these same ideas or practices or tactics can be used to enrich our everyday relationships, relationships between husbands and wife, parents and kids. How so? What is that? How can, how can the same thing be used for completely opposite ends? Yeah, I love that. So let's think about, first of all, to answer that from a con man, how he gets people to, to fall for things, right? So a con man comes up and he uses the, and maybe not even understanding the science, but he uses the science behind a molecule in our body called oxytocin. And he tells you a secret. He tells you, I'll use Victor Lustwig. He was a famous con man that sold the Eiffel Tower a couple times. He actually conned Al Capone successfully and didn't get killed. <laughs> and what he did is he always had secrets. I'm going to tell you this thing that nobody knows. The Eiffel Tower is about to be taken down and that scrap metal is going to go for millions of dollars. If you want in, I have a road in. And when you feel trusted by someone, your brain releases this chemical oxytocin and it makes a connection between two people that is really hard to break. So let's take just that one principle. When I'm interacting with someone else, my wife, my kids, an employee, someone at a grocery store, I can go into that interaction only thinking about what I want. I want this out of this conversation. So all I'm going to do is talk about this and I'm going to point the direction this way. But if I go into the conversation thinking, you know what, I'm going to leave you feeling better for having met me. And I'm going to think about what you want out of this conversation. And I enter it that way. I build a bond with you and a trust with you that will make you more compliant to the things I want. And that's not manipulative. It's just learning how to communicate in a way that brings peace and harmony as opposed to argument and dissension. Right. Con men are often... They, they know how to be friendly. They know yes. <laughs> I mean, what it comes down to. And you say like one of the foundational principles of, of hacking humans, of human hacking is empathy. So, I mean, are, are con men, like, are they empathetic? Oh, they are. I mean, so think about what empathy really means. Because sometimes we get this wrong. And I think especially in Western cultures and, you know, me as a male, we especially in our gender get this wrong where I may say I'm empathetic, but, you know, Brett, I let you have your feelings. That's not empathy right? That's almost condescending. It's not, and empathy is also not saying, I understand what you're going through because I can't. Let's say you and I went through the same exact situation. You know, we, we had a family member sick with COVID. I still can't understand fully your emotional content because maybe your relationship with that family member is different. It's closer or not as close. So empathy is not that. Empathy is allowing me to put myself in your emotional shoes to understand why you may be acting or talking or reacting in a certain way and not judging you for it. So by literally saying, look, I could see that you're stressed. I could see this is happening. Tell me about that. Why, why are you so upset about this family member? Were you really close and allowing you to now tell me about it and really being curious? Now I'm active listening. I'm trying to understand what it is that you're going through. And I'm not offering you solutions and I'm not jumping in and interrupting you. I'm literally active listening while showing real curiosity about your life. And if we learn that skill, can you imagine the problems that we can solve in this world if we all can do that? So a big part of gaining more empathy so that you can to work with people and, and persuade them and influence them effectively and get along with them is you got to understand their personality and where they're coming from. And you talk about in the book, dedicate this chapter that 
you can get like a rough idea of someone's communication personality style by running through what's called a disk assessment. What is a disk assessment and like what are you what are the categories you're trying to figure out as you're running through this assessment on a person? So way back in the 30s, a very famous psychologist by the name of William Marston, he's actually the creator of the polygraph. He is the creator of Wonder Woman as a comic book hero, believe it or not. He started to analyze and catalog communication points that indicate a certain type of communicator. And he broke them into four categories. So you have very dominant or D type communicators, I that are influencers, S that are very steady and people orientated, and C that are very conscientious, organized communicators. And when you look at someone and you can look at them just from across the room as they communicate with friends, family, employees, or the pictures they have, their social media, any of those things can indicate what kind of a communicator that is. Now, if I understand the type of communicator you are, and I'm trying to influence you, whether it's for good or bad, um, I can come up and communicate with you in the way that you desire. And if I do that, your brain will automatically reward you with dopamine, and that will be related to me. So you'll feel good because you're you're getting something that you like and enjoy, and I'm the reason you're getting it, so you're going to be more compliant with the things that I, I ask for. Is it is, is like I've done is the color code based on this? I've done the the color yeah, code. Yeah, so it's book. similar. It's very okay, similar to similar. that, right? So and because the reason I like this, like let's say over Myers Briggs, is you really can't teach someone to do a Myers Briggs profile on the fly. Right. I can't look across the room and go, you're an INTJ. You know, that's like impossible. But with disc, you can just take a few seconds, even a photo or a, a screenshot of their social media, and we can clearly indicate what kind of a communicator that person is. And even if you can just get it into 50% of the quadrant, you have a better chance of communicating with them in a way that will make their brains reward them. And that, that goes well. And, and think of this from a not an attacker standpoint. Imagine you're, you know, you have to go talk to your spouse about something difficult. You have to talk to your brother or sister about a family problem. If you do that in a way that's in their communication style, they're going to be more prone to listen to you and to want to take the action you want them to take because you rewarded them with this gift. Right. So if they're a dominant style, but you try to you know, approach them like an influencer style where you're trying to like, hey, what's going on? I, you know, and they're gonna be like, you're beating around the bush. Like, what do you want? Get to the point. Right. So that, that'd be an example of two conflicting communication styles. And you'd want to be just to the point, hey, I need, the, the example you use throughout your book is I need $10,000 for help with mom's health care or something right. like that. Just say that. If they're dominant, you just say, hey, I need, I need 10,000 bucks from you. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and if, and if I'm an, if I'm an I, like you said, and I'm all jovial and jokey and I don't get to the point really quick. And my sister is that D communicator and I'm there at the table, like, look, I really need to talk to you about something important, but Hey, first, how's life going? What's what, that's a great color. This and that she's now getting irritated because she's waiting for me to get to the point. So by the time I get to the point, her emotional content is now irritation, less likely to comply. Whereas if I were to start the conversation off with, Look, the reason I asked you here today is I have something really serious to talk to you about mom and, and it's going to cost us as a family a lot of money. And I need to know how we can work together to make this happen. So I looked into this home and they want $10,000. You know, what can we do to make this work together? Now I've presented the problem, given her options, asked her for help, and I did it without all the fluff. She's more readily going to be able to speak to me with empathy, compassion, compl- compliance over if I used my communication profile to to chat with her. 
Uh, so talk about dominant, we talk about influencer. Steady, is that more just like they're, you're, you're, you care about the relationship? Like what is it? What's a- They are. They love to really be more about the people of their group and their team or their family winning. And then a conscientious person, they're just detailed oriented. Very detailed. They love lists. They love color codes. They love uh, sticky notes. They love bullet points. So for them, a decision is made by facts, figures, statistics, details. And if you don't present those, they're going to doubt that you actually know what you're talking about. Great. So again, there's like, you know, detailed assessments you can do, like quizzes you can do on people. In fact, you do this with yes. your employees. You have them take this disc assessment, but as you, you can do this on the fly. If you just kind of look and you get a thumbnail sketch of their communication style. And on that thumbnail sketch, you can make adjustments so that your communication lands better. Yeah. So if you like in your mind drew a circle and you put a cross in the middle of the circle, so you had four quadrants. So D is in the upper left. I is in the upper right. S is in the lower right. C is in the lower left. Now on the very top of that, you wrote task. I'm sorry, you wrote direct. And on the bottom of the circle, you wrote indirect. On the left, you wrote task. And on the right, you wrote people. Now forget about the letters. You can look at someone, even their social media, and you can say, are they more task or people oriented? Right. So let's take that I communicator. When you're looking at their Twitter, they're going to be talking about pretty things, happy things. They're going to be very jovial, a lot of I, I, I kind of comments, which means you probably have either an I or an S. And then you see, oh, but they're pretty direct. They're not beating around the bush or not about the team. That makes them an I. So you can do that in a few seconds. And now I know what kind of a communicator you are. And I can easily then adjust my style to match yours or to, to communicate better. All right. So that's the sort of the first step in hacking humans. It is. The second one is this idea. It's, it happens in social engineering. It's a concept called pretexting. What is pretexting? So it's really making up the act of what it is that you're going to be for this engagement, right? So from a hacking standpoint, it's I'm pest control. I'm a repairman. I'm a fellow employee. Uh, even though I'm none of those things, it's, it's the pretext. But in real life, we don't want to do something that's unethical or unreal. So you have to choose a pretext that is more realistic. So how do you do that? How do, how do you pretext ethically? Uh, so I'll give you an example of my family. So let's say I have my daughter. She did something she wasn't supposed to do. I have a couple pretexts I can approach this as. The angry dad that's here to punish, the empathetic dad that wants to understand why you did this, or the you know aloof, confused dad that has no clue what's going on. Gotcha. And you can do this if you're a boss. You can be angry boss, yep. concerned boss, et cetera. And, and how do you figure out like which pretext it takes? Is it just based on the situation, the personality of the person? How do you figure yeah, that out? Yeah, that's a great question, by the way. So there's a couple factors. First is the situation, as you mentioned. That's number one. But then really the next thing you have to think about is what is the desired outcome? So what do I want? Right. So let's use your situation as a boss. So let's say, you know, I work for you. And I did something pretty stupid at work and you need to tell me. So you have a couple of pretexts. You could be the boss that comes in and says, listen, moron, that was really dumb. Like, I can't believe you did that. Or you can be the boss that tries to understand why did you do this and let's figure out how to fix it. Now, the outcome is different. If you're ready to fire me and you don't want to retain me as an employee, then maybe you do the first one. You get me in the office and you say, look, that thing you did, it was way beyond, I can't handle it. You're, you're relieved of your, your employment. But maybe you say, I want to keep Chris here. He's a pretty good employee and I don't understand why he did this. So you pull me in the office and you're like, Chris, I, I need to understand this. 
this thing that happened and it's really messing up the company. Can you explain to me what your thinking was? And that action will result in your desired action, even though you may be really angry and you want to take pretext number one, your end result, your desired result would occur more by pretext two. Gotcha. So the end goal determines the pretext. Yes. Okay. So you've set the pretext, you got that going. The next part is and hacking humans, social engineering is developing rapport with someone. And we've had a guest of yours or partner of yours on our podcast, who are Robin Dreek, who writes and talks and trains a lot about this. How do you define rapport when it comes to communication? Yeah, I, I love Robin, by the way. And it's his work from his very first book that I really base all of this on. Because building rapport is like building that connection between two people, allowing two people to feel comfortable with each other, finding that middle ground and allowing them to communicate in open space comfortably. When I talk about rapport in my classes, I often say things like, you have to answer four things to help build rapport. So who are you? What do you want? How long will this take? And are you a threat? If you can answer those four things by using one of the 10 principles that Robin talks about in his first book about rapport, you can build a strong relationship with a, even a complete stranger that can that can make you become very friendly and you can get almost anything you want. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So Robin talks a lot, this can take, if he's coming from like anti-terrorism perspective and for him, like he'd have to develop this rapport sometimes over years, right? To yep. get a target. How can you do this on the fly with somebody? Let's say you're just, you're meeting someone for the first time. How do you develop that where they just, they want to connect with you and they want to open up to you? Yeah. And let me just state something about why with Robin, it would take that much longer. It's the, the level of the ask is determined by the level of rapport, right? So if you, if you and I just met, right? So we just met for the first time and let's say we're in person, even though we're not, and you know, we're friendly, we're having a nice chat, but we're not at that level of rapport where I can be like, Hey, Brett, you want to come over and help me move all the furniture in my house? I need, I need a, need a strong back, right? I can't do that because we're not there yet. Our rapport is not at that level. So what Robin is asking his targets to do is basically become a, a source for the government that's not theirs. You need a pretty big level of rapport to make that ask. So in my accounts, my rapport generally when I'm breaking into a building, I just need you to like me enough to let me through and not stop me for the next five minutes. So I don't need you to be my best friend. I don't need you to fall in love with me. I just need slight rapport. So I generally do that through something that we call active listening which is when you really show an interest in a person, they feel liked. And when they feel liked, they release dopamine and oxytocin. That brain soup makes them feel really compliant with the things you're asking. And it makes them easier to, to trust you because no one thinks that a nice guy can do anything wrong. So if they trust you and like you, they'll think that you're not nefarious and that they'll, they'll let you in. So just be friendly. Rapport is all about being friendly. It is. Be friendly and be interested in the other person. See, people quickly know when you're there just for your goal, they can quickly figure that out, right? And if you're there to help others and you're interested in them, they're more readily to ignore anything weird about you because they're focused on on that great feeling that you left with them. 
And how do you do this, like, in say a, a close relationship, like with your kid? Like, how would what would rapport building look like that? Say your kid did something wrong, and you got to talk to him about it. Yeah, you've got the pretext. You figured, okay, I'm going to be kind, understanding, dad. Now, this my kid's upset. He's probably angry at me. He's going to push back. How do I break that barrier and develop some rapport rapport between yeah. the two of us for this conversation? That's a that's a good scenario too. So we first may have to look at the situation. And we say, okay, what is this? So let's, let's use, you know, my son, he did this thing. He, I think I tell this story in the book. I do tell the story in the book. He got into a fight at a party and he didn't want to talk to us about it because he was embarrassed. So the rapport building for me has to be first, hey, tell me, how did it go last night? Did you have a good time? Oh yeah, I did this, this, and this. Oh, that's great. And you have a conversation about the things he liked. What that does is that gets him in his mindset of, oh, I'm telling dad all about the great things, the people I hung out with, the games we played, they had this kind of music, oh, I ate this food. Now when his mindset is in a place of comfort, I say, so hey, what happened uh, between you and, and Stuart? And now all of a sudden, you know, he is less uncomfortable and he's like, well, something, you know, something happened bad. We got into a, we got into a little scuffle. Oh, really? That's a shame. You know, tell me what happened. And now I don't change my tune. Like as soon as he tells me, I don't go, what? You did what? I still keep with that same pretext because you never break pretext. And I'm like, oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. What happened? You know, and you become that active listener. He feels like, okay, dad's actually not mad. I can open up a little more. And if at any point during that, I break pretext and start being like, what the heck is wrong with you? He's going to shut right back up and not want to open up to me. So it's, you know, once you choose that pretext, you got to stick to it. And let's say he was completely in the wrong and punishment needs to occur. Well, my goal of this conversation wasn't discipline. My goal of that conversation was to find out facts. So let me keep my pretext. And at the end of it, I say, you know, Colin, this sounds like a pretty bad situation. We're going to have to talk about what we need to do, but I can see you're pretty emotional. Why don't we, you know, stop for now and we can talk a little bit later about how we have to handle the situation. Now I end the conversation with rapport, with keeping my pretext. He sees I never broke that. I let the emotion pass. We come back a little bit later and say, okay, Colin, thanks for talking to me about that. Now we need to talk about what, how we're going to fix this. You obviously you may have to go apologize and blah, blah, blah. And we go through some steps, but I didn't break the pretext of that compassionate dad and jump into a new pretext just because I felt I had to. When you do that and communication, trust, rapport, it gets built and you can have long-term effects on you, your family, your employees, stuff like that for, for a very long time. Gotcha. All right. So we've, we've pretexted, we've built rapport. And let's say in this conversation, we're trying to persuade Right. So there's, we've got a, a child who's staying out past curfew and we want to persuade them by not using coercion necessarily, but gently nudge them so they can start complying with the curfew. How does that look like? What are some skills that you use as a social engineer that can be used in everyday social interactions? Yeah. So that, uh, that's another good scenario. So, you know, you, uh, the worst time to, to talk to your to get compliance from your kids is after they've right, right then done the bad thing, right? They're, they're less likely to be compliant with that. So what I would normally say is when you know you're having a problem, your kid's coming home past curfew, he's done it a few times. So maybe you're sitting there one day at the dinner table and you start a conversation. Say, hey, you know, I'll use my kid again. Colin, you know, he's older than this now, but I can use a scenario when he wasn't. 
Colin, you're like 17 now. You know, what do you think your curfew should be? I'm just curious. Uh, what do you think? What time do most of your friends have as a curfew? And he says, uh, t- 12 a.m. Okay. So right now, what do we have it at again? He's like, uh, he says to me, 10. Now I know what the answer, right? But I'm asking him to state it out loud. What, what time do we have? 1030. Uh, that's so early compared to my friends. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. I can understand that. I said, how about this? How about I raise it to 11? And if you can, if you can get here on time for a, a period of time, we'll raise it. And he's like, okay. And I'm like, so how long do you think you should comply? with this new time in order to earn uh, another half an hour. I'll say that to him. Now I'm asking him for his opinion. You tell me how long. And he'll be like, uh, how about one week? And I'm like, well, you know, you don't go out every night. You only go out like on the weekend. So how about we say for three weeks, if you can be on time for three weeks, then I'll add another half an hour. Okay, deal. Now let's shake on it. So now he's going to work harder at complying to this new rule because he's the one who came up with the, with the three weeks, even though it was my idea prodding him and he's going to work really hard for that. Now three weeks is going to come. He's like, dad, I did it. Okay, great. Now your curfew is 1130. Where I would ruin this is if I said, yeah, you did it, but I really don't want you to be home at 1130 because I thought you were going to fail. I've just ruined all my trust with him. So you can't do that. So be, if you're going to commit to this, you have to commit to it. So now he does it for three weeks. He gets his 1130. Say, okay, Colin, I know you really want your curfew to be midnight. So how about this? Because that's really late for me. It makes me worried. So how about we do a four week period for this next curfew? And if in one month you're still doing it, great. Then we'll raise it to midnight. It's like, okay, great. And, and, I, and then we make some rules up because we know there's going to be mistakes. So hey, if you're out, Colin, and you think you're going to be late, you got to call me way, be, you know, you got to call me before that one minute mark. Tell me what's happened. Tell me why you're going to be late. You know, just because you're late once doesn't mean we're going to deep six this deal. You know, we may have to talk about the reason. So, you know, it can't be, ooh, I forgot to look at my clock. You know, so let's talk about this. And we give them options to also communicate more openly. I found that to get a lot better compliance with my kids. Well, I think that's for, for anybody. Like people like to feel like they have choices. Like they're, if someone yes. feels like they, they're making the choice, they're more likely to be, they're more likely to comply, which just sounds counterintuitive. <laughs> you think if you constrain people's choices, they would comply, but that's not how it works. It's not. No, because sometimes the, the act of non-compliance is just that they feel trapped. And when you feel trapped, your only option is to not comply. But if you give people options, then compliance generally is not what, what, especially your kids is not what they're arguing about. It's just that you didn't give them a choice. You know, I I tell this story in the book about when my son was young. At one point, he decided I'm not eating breakfast anymore before school. And it was affecting his moods and his low blood sugar and all of this at school. And the teachers were complaining and he was, you know, sneaking snacks in the middle of class. And so I kept saying, you have to eat, you know, and I was doing it the wrong way. Then I came up with this idea. You know what? I'm going to ask him before bed one night. Okay, Colin, tomorrow morning, what do you want? Oatmeal or eggs? He's like, oatmeal. I'm like, great. How do you want it? You, I'll make it any way you want. Now he has a choice. I want it with uh, honey and you know brown sugar. Okay, great. Done. Next morning he gets up. There's a bowl of oatmeal the way he wanted it. It was his choice. Delivered the way he asked for it. We won. He ate oatmeal so much that to this day, he's now in his 20s. He hates oatmeal. (laughs) (laughs) And you do this sort of giving people options in your social engineering. Like you'll go to a desk and instead of saying, hey, you let me in, I'm the electrician. 
it'd be like, if they say no, you're like, oh, well, is there anything we can do? I mean, is there something, you know, we can do to make this happen? <laughs> and you give person like the choice decision to say yes or no. And, and a lot of times what I do is I give them a choice that both leads to me getting what I want, but they feel like they have the choice. Right. So what would be an example of this? Like, how would that? So I went into a place once where we knew the guy was on vacation. He told, he, he went on Facebook. He, he, he put on Facebook. He was going on vacation. He put that he was flying. He, he took pictures of him there. And then he said, I'm offline until, you know, February 14th. So we knew we had some time. So when I went into the place expecting that, that the gatekeeper would just fall for that, you know, Hey, Jack asked me to come. He said he's on vacation here at this island. He won't be back to the 14th. He wanted me to fix his computer. She was like, no, you're not in the book. I'm not letting you in. So now I had to come up with the choice. Okay. Well, listen, Beth, I'll leave, but I need you to sign this document saying you're rejecting the appointment. And I hand her the clipboard and she grabs it. And she's, and as right before she signs it, I say, because I won't be able to make it back probably until the end of March, because that's the next appointment I have open. And she's like, oh no, if he's having a problem with the computer, you need to come back in February when he's back. I said, well, I explained to Jack when he called that we had only two slots. He chose this one. The other one's full now. So I can't come back until March. And she's like, well, I don't want to sign this then. And I'm like, I said, Beth, come on, you understand the rules here. I, if I go back to my boss and say, I didn't do this job, he's going to ask why. I'm going to have to tell him that, you know, you wouldn't let me do the job because Jack probably forgot because he was so excited about going on his first vacation. So you tell me what, how do you think I should handle this? And she just stares at that paper for like a full, like 10 seconds, which is super long, you know, and I don't say anything. You just got to stay quiet, let them think. And then she huffs and she goes, okay, come on, come with me. But I'm going to go in the office first and shut some things up just for security. And I'm like, okay. So she goes in and she shuts his closet where his whiteboard is. She shuts all his desk drawers. She turns some papers over on his desk. And then she goes, okay, you can go in. And she lets me in. To the, to the office and leaves. So I, you know, open the clipboard or open the whiteboard, <laughs> turn the papers over, open the desk, hack the computer, you know, and then I leave. But it was her choice that I gave her that allowed me to win, to win that. All right. So, yeah, but in this example, you wouldn't want to lie to your kid saying, Oh, no. No, you're not doing no. it. But it's, it's, it's the underlying principle is what you're trying to get across with this. Give people yeah, choices. Yeah. So in the, with your kid, it's kind of like what I did with the oatmeal. You know, with my kid, both of those choices were good. Both of those choices got what I wanted, which was him eating some food in the morning so he didn't have a problem in school. And all I did was allow him to make the choice of which one of those options he wants. So as long as he makes one of those two choices, in essence, I win, but he made the op- he had the options to choose. In the book, in this chapter about influence, you, you make a distinction between influence and manipulation. I, I, the, I think the distinction is this, is that manipulation is you're often using emotions like strong emotions to get people to do something. So it's usually fear is fear is the big one. Yeah. So if you ever see or find yourself resorting to that, you're no longer influencing, you are manipulating. Yeah. And, and you take away the power of decision from the person, right? Because if you're bringing fear, like if I went in uh, to my son's room and that same example, and I went, listen, if you don't eat breakfast tomorrow, You're grounded from TV, iPad, electronics, video games for a month. And every day you don't eat, you're getting another month of grounding. He may comply, but it's not because he made a choice or he sees the value in it. He's only going to do it because of fear of punishment. So I, I got compliance, but, but that's not, it's not the way to do it by getting him to comply with options 
and him making the choice, I influenced him to make a decision now he's happy to follow. And not only that, to go on with that story, something I didn't put in the book, there was a few times where I overslept and he would go down and make his own oatmeal because that was his choice. He had committed to it in his mind. He committed that this was the thing he was going to eat for breakfast. So he made his own oatmeal. And, you know, it, that was winning because he, he made the choice. He did it. He wasn't manipulated. It wasn't out of fear. It wasn't out of punishment. So it was influenced to make him have that choice. And I think that's a good takeaway to, to avoid being manipulated is if, if you are in a conversation and you are suddenly feeling uncomfortable, a lot of emotions, you got to notice that, like notice that and that's probably a red flag that you're being manipulated right now and you should pay more attention. You know, it, it, it kind of the play off the name of your podcast. To me, it doesn't feel too manly to be a manipulator. More power. I mean, I always ask people when I'm teaching to, to think of someone who they consider truly humble. And when they think of that person, whoever that person is, I say, give me one or two words that describe how you feel when you hang out with that person. If your listeners are playing along, they probably have a few words in their mind. And I usually get words like empowered, strong validated, complimented, happy. Now, doesn't that sound awesome? Like if you can leave people feeling that way, that's way more powerful than empowering yourself by manipulating others. So an an important part of social hacking is you're trying to get people to open up to you and divulge information they otherwise wouldn't divulge. And this is called elicitation, correct? Yes. So in the phishing scam world, like elicitation would be getting people to say their PIN number, credit card number, social security numbers, et cetera. What does this look like if you're trying to just talk to someone in an everyday relationship? Yeah. So sometimes I want to find out information about, you know, let's say an employee, like why why were they in a bad mood this morning? You know, so-and-so came to work and man, she was in a really bad mood and she was snappy with people. She's normally really jovial. So again, my pretext, I can go up to her and say, Hey, what's wrong with you? You're, you know, you're kind of being a snappy today. That would be one way I may embarrass her or call her out, make her feel bad, or I can have a conversation with her. So a elicitation conversation may be something like where we're at the coffee pot, right? We're getting coffee and at the same time. And I'm like, Oh man, I really need this. This is like my third cup. I had a rough night. I woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. So if I say anything stupid, please just, you know, forgive me. And that conversation may elicit her now to say, yeah, me too, man. Got in a fight with my husband this morning. Just put me in a bad mood. On the way here, I hit a squirrel. You know how much I hate killing animals. Just kind of wrecked my whole day. Just in a total bad mood. I got the answer I wanted, but I didn't have to ask the question. That's elicitation. Right. To to get a secret, share a secret. Yeah. Yeah, quid pro quo is what they call it. So you, you give a little bit, you get a little bit. And in that time, she doesn't, she, she may, you know, later on realize I was asking this, but she doesn't feel violated or, or put on the spot because I didn't come up to her and say, Hey, what's up with the attitude? All I did was have a conversation. And I told her now, again, if that didn't happen to you, don't make up a lie. You know, don't be like, yeah, on the way here this morning, I hit a dog. Really makes me sad. It ruined my day. You know how much I hate killing animals too? Cause you know that about her. Like that would be a horrible way. She finds out that never happened and then you've ruined all your, your trust, you know? So, um, yeah, you can't, you know, like you have to make sure it's truthful and, you know, make sure that what you're saying is, is honest because that it, when if you ever get caught in that lie, 
they're going to, they're, you're going to ruin rapport. Well, besides, you know, do the quid pro quo, are there any other elicitation techniques that you think are useful in everyday social interactions? You know, I, what I love, uh, one of my favorite ones, right? There's a few that I mentioned in the book, but one of my favorite ones is called deliberate false statement. And that sounds opposite of what I just said about being truthful, but let me tell you how it can be used. So you take a statement that you know isn't truthful, but you're not, now I'm not encouraging you to lie. So I'll, I'll give you an example of how this may work. Maybe you and I are in a conversation and you say something like, Oh yeah, I've been, you know, running this podcast for X amount of years. And I go, really? Wow. You've been doing podcasts for that long. And now that's, I'm faking this surprise, but I'm doing it in a way where I'm not just like teasing you or mocking you. And now what that does to you is it shows you I'm interested and you keep talking. You'd be like, Oh yeah, I remember my early days, this and this and this. And then I go, so I don't know. Like, what is that? Like you must have been. You've been doing it for 10 years. You must have been like, what, like 19 when you started, right? Deliberate false statement. And you're like, no, man, I started when I was like 24. Oh, okay. Now I know you've been doing it for 10 years. You're 24. You're 34 years old. <laughs> so now I can start to figure out what year you were born. Like, oh, 34. Oh, man. Okay. So like, you're an 80s baby. Wow. That's kind of cool. Man, the 80s were a crazy time, huh? I don't know about you, but like, you know, to me, 80s, summertime, out of school, that was my favorite time. And now we start talking about things you like, and I may find out the month you were born. You know, here's a conversation where in just a few sentences with a few principles, I know something about your your work, you know, how long you've been podcasting, how old you are, the year you were born, the month you were born, your hobbies during those times. And I don't have to use any of that. I just now have all this information on this person that helps me build a relationship. All right, so feign like feign interest. I mean, you're not feigning. You're, you'd be interested and just sort of say things like, "Oh, wow!" And they're just people are just going to open up to correct you. Yeah, and the reason they call it feigned is because you're you're being surprised, and you may not be, but you know, you don't want to go overboard. Like, "Oh my God, you've been ten? What? That's amazing! Like, that's too much, right?" So you don't do that, but you go like, "Really, ten years? Wow, dude, that's a long time to be." I mean, that, you were podcasting when it wasn't even popular, and that is. That's not a fake statement, but maybe the surprise is a little bit, but I'm not being you know superficial. I'm just doing that because I want you to talk more about it. Gotcha. And this elicitation, this is all part of like, it's, it's, it's a virtuous, like all this stuff is going on. It's not like a, a, a ladder, like you do this, 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 it's going on all at once. You know, you might be doing some elicitation, then you're going to go back to pretexting, then you're going to go back to rapport building and then go back to influencing the, and so you kind of have to see this as sort of like a, a fluid interact, dynamic interaction. And that elicitation can help you one, develop more rapport, and two, figure out what you what you can do or say to help be more influential. Exactly right. I love the way you put that. It's very fluid because you may have to revisit your pretext to make sure you're staying true to it. And when I hit, you know, tier one rapport, because elicitation is going so well, I might want to take that to the next tier of rapport. And a point you make in the book, and I think a lot of people think this might be weird, but it can be really useful is when you're having a conversation or you're going to have a conversation with somebody, like take some time before that conversation and outline it. You don't have to do pencil and paper, but you you make this argument that you know before any big conversation or even small conversation, you should have a rough idea of, okay, what's the pretext? Uh, what's your goal? How are you going to build rapport with this person based on their personality? And that can help the conversation go a lot more smoothly. I, I put this thing on. So if you go to humanhackingbook.com and you sign up for the resources page, I actually put a worksheet on there on how you can do that. 
because I had so many people asking questions like, how do I outline just a conversation? And because I love the way you put it, you're not outlining every word. You're not writing a script. You're not sitting there saying, okay, then say this. That's impossible to do. But what you do is you can outline your goals, your pretext, how you're going to apply these principles, what methods you want to use. And I have a worksheet on there that can help you do that. And I even give you a sample worksheet on one that I worked up to, to have a, a hard conversation with my daughter. So you can work these things out. And if you have that kind of a goal set before a conversation, there's a greater likelihood that it's going to go the way you want and you're going to be able to accomplish your goal because you have that plan. And I imagine as you do this, you start off doing this very deliberately, but as you do this stuff, practice this stuff over and over again, you can start doing it on the fly. Like you won't need to yeah. do that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't fill out sheets now for every time I do this because I've been doing this for so long. When I have, an, let's say an employee problem, let's use that. I'll go, okay. She'll laugh when she hears this. I'll use Maxie as an example. So I go and look at Maxie's uh, disc profile that I have and I'm go, okay, she, she communicates this way. I have to get her to do this. What's my best way of doing that? What's the principles I should use? What's the timing I should approach her? I know she gets nervous if I say, hey, can we just have a conversation? She always thinks it's something bad. So let me approach it this way. And I make a little plan in my head of the best way to to bring this up. And then I go and execute that. I don't have to write it all down because I've been doing it for so long. It becomes second nature. And that will happen for anyone. You, you, you do this a few times, it becomes second nature. And you'll just, you'll, you'll find you're doing it without even thinking. Well, Chris, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and the rest of your work? So if they want more on the book, they can go to humanhackingbook.com. All the areas you can buy it are there in addition to that resources page, which has so many details. We have a, a conference coming up, which is all about this. It's a virtual conference, humanhackingconference.com, March 11 through 13, which has some of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Robin Dreek will be there and Joe Navarro, some others that will be doing some training on on how we can improve ourselves, like hack ourselves. Yeah, well, Chris Hadnagy, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Chris Hadnagy. He's the author of the book, Human Hacking. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You find out more information about the book at his website, humanhackingbook.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash humanhacking. We can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you all to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.